We're continuing in our series on the story of salvation, the history of redemption, how God has worked to bring his one story of saving his people about and into being. And so this morning we're in Genesis chapter 22. Listen, as I was getting ready for this this week, I realized that week after week it it gets to be something of a challenge as a listener to hear me say, uh, I, I know you've heard this passage preached this way, but that's not what it means. This is what it means. And it occurred to me that I should explain that to you. Uh, some of you think that I like to just sort of stir the pot and make you upset, but that's not really what's happening. And I'm really not trying to be controversial. I do that because I have questions about these passages. And when I hear sermons like those, the ones that we've all grown up hearing, where the meaning of the passage is clear to all of us before it's ever even opened and read, my questions aren't answered in those sermons. So I don't want to hear them, much less preach them. It strikes me that parents who care about their their children's education, they, they get very upset when... The institution teaches to the test, right? Isn't that what makes us angry? And yet nobody gets angry when the church does it. In fact, the church is expected to do it. Just tell us what we've already heard. Tell us what we've heard for years. No, grace is too deep and too rich for that. We can't do that. So this morning we continue from Genesis 22, digging deeper. Young Christians, young theologians, one question for you this morning. Did Abraham love his son Isaac? And how do you know? How can you be sure? See if you can answer that question. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Although in this passage it comes in a very dark package. Still, this is the grace of salvation for us. And we'll trust Jesus to open our eyes and our hearts to it. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. 
And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and win and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba And Abraham lived in that place. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. And these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maakah. Let's pray as we begin. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you to open to us the good news of this strange story, which is our story. This is how you have thought of us, and this is what you have done with and for us. So now show us how we are your people through all that's held out to us and pictured here. Make us glad for it. Deepen our faith by it. and Give to us joy as we've not had before knowing that our God loves us like this. And for all this, we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? <clears throat> the Word of God created all things for perfection in Jesus, according to Genesis 1. That was the first week of our series And then the word of God in the shape of two trees in the middle of the garden insisted on grace over guilt in Genesis 3. That was our second week in the series. And now that same word of God is thrown up on an altar of sacrifice in Genesis 22. The creative word, the saving word becomes the threatened word in this story. We're in the period of biblical history known as the patriarchs, the age of the fathers, the fathers of the faith. It extends roughly from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. In the house where I grew up, there was a large picture frame hanging on on the wall in the hallway. It had a mat with a dozen or so cutouts in it, and so it was able to hold that many snapshots, that many photographs, 
They were all old. They were, they were pictures that had been taken decades earlier. They were grainy and yellowed. Photographs that were taken in a colorless world where nobody smiled, apparently. And no one quite knew who all these people were. We could identify some of them, but some of them didn't have names anymore. They were worn away by the years. They just couldn't be placed on the family tree with any certainty. We knew they were family. That's how the pictures had come down to us. But no one remembered where they fit in the family story. They were just faces burnt onto pieces of paper by light exposure and chemicals. There was one picture, specifically, a distant relative who was some kind of a Catholic priest, and he wore black robes buttoned all the way down to his ankles. He wore leather lace-up boots. He sat cross-legged, reclining in a chair in a churchyard somewhere, and his head was shaved ghostly white, and his eyes were dark and blackened. And he looked stern as the law. And we called him Uncle Fester because he looked like he should be in an episode of the Adams family. And he was frightening to look at. And it was terrifying to think that somehow I was connected to him. My story was attached to him. The patriarchs are like the old photographs hanging in the hallway of the house. They are portraits of men with too much beard and too little hair on top. And hooded eyes, worn into canyons at the corners, from squinting into the sun, trying to catch just a glimpse of the God who was dragging them around the desert. They had rounded shoulders, sagging under years of weight, of promise and unbelief, and too much belly spilling over the belt. They were the kinds of men, the kinds of heads of families who laugh too loud and show too many teeth. And they cry too wet when they're moved to tears. They drink too much at family reunions and make passes at the serving girls. And then they repent like televangelists caught on camera and like hypocrites. The very next morning, they lead the family in prayer services like men with hearts on fire. And they did all kinds of strange things. They held councils with angels. They heard voices from heaven. They wrestled with God until limbs were pulled from sockets. Their lives weren't a victory march so much as a limping along. They played favorites with their children and their wives. And when they thought it would save their necks, they loaned their wives out on dates with lusty kings. And they stole and connived to get God's blessing. And they laughed in God's face from time to time. But they clung to a promise. They swear God had written into the stars for them. He'd carved it into their flesh with circumcision, which they performed wherever they set up their tents in a holy haze of wincing and worship. And they had names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but their names were strange. The first one meant father of fathers, and the second one meant laughter, and the third one meant heels. 
The patriarchs are like piecing together your own genealogy. They're part legend and part folklore, part myth, and mostly they're the skeletons that come rattling out of the family closet. My kids see this commercial on television for Ancestry.com, a search engine that will allow you to put together your own lost family history like some genetic detective. And my kids always say the same thing. Oh, Daddy, we should do that. We should put together our family tree. And I always say the same thing back. No, we shouldn't. You don't want to know what's in those branches. Trust me. But remember, Genesis is written by Moses as the Israelites are crossing the desert, leaving slavery in Egypt far behind. They're on their way to live in God's promised land, and they have to know who they are in order to be who they're supposed to be when they reach wherever home is. And in order to do all of that, they have to know where they come from. Sooner or later, you have to look at the grainy, yellowed photographs, the ones that frighten you, because they tell your story. If you really want to feel the tension and the drama of this passage to its depth, I think you have to start with the verses that everyone glosses over and nobody pays attention to. The verses at the very end, verses 20 through 24. After Abraham's knife-swinging hand has been stopped by grace... And he's collapsed in a pile of emotional exhaustion, cradling his hogtied son, weeping into his neck. After the long, wordless, slow climb down the mountain, news reaches Abraham that his brother Nahor, back home, still living in his father Terah's house, Nahor has a huge family. Eight children by his wife and four more by a concubine. You follow? Abraham's brother has children just spilling out of his body like sweat. And Abraham has to plead and obtain one child by divine promise. And that child comes as the years have drawn on. Long, childless, unbearable years. And Sarah looks less and less like a bride and more and more like a professional funeral mourner. And Abraham is more of a dried stick than a man. And then, after God gives them his promise, he drags his feet for who knows how many more years to make the promise that much more painful and the birth that much more miraculously joyous. And after all of that, after all of that, suddenly, without warning, the word of God comes to Abraham again, and the promise is going to be taken away. One night, Abraham hears the voice of God. It's startling. It's like awaking from sleep. It's the same voice that Abraham heard years before when he was down in his father's cellar, according to Joshua 24. An earthen hole under the floor with a shelf set into the dirt wall with a clutter of little statues standing on it. They're the gods of Abraham's father. They're the gods that Abraham himself worshipped. One is just a round lump of clay, its head and body merged in one sphere, and it has a beak like a bird. 
Another is just a stick set upright on one end with no features at all. It just has painted lines of different colored dyes drawn across it horizontally. Another is made of fish bones and feathers. One has a lock of human hair set in a scalp of clay. Another wears a skirt made out of dried blades of grass. And one wears no skirt at all, the fertility goddess, lewd and beckoning and too grotesque to be erotic. And Abraham prays to her the most. He rubs perfume across her breasts, dribbles wine over her head, and for some reason she bears a grudge against him and she refuses to hear his prayers and give him children. And one day as Abraham is in Terah's cellar, standing before the shelf of God's, hissing prayers like curses through clenched teeth, Abraham hears a voice, and it's not like the voices of these gods, high and thin and raspy. It's a voice like a song in the heart. It's everywhere and nowhere. It filled the cellar, but it wasn't in the cellar. And the voice told him to leave all these gods. The voice would be his God now. And the voice told him to leave his father's house. He would be the father of a great house now. And Abraham scrambled up the ladder as fast as he could, thrashing and clomping like a goat, trying to climb out of a gorge in the rock. And that same voice led him out into the desert. And one night, It called him to come out of his tent and it stretched the promise out in front of him. It expanded the promise. In the middle of the nowhere, Abraham is told to look up into the dark. How many stars do you see? Too many. Count them. I can't go that high. That's how many descendants will come from you, from the son I give you. Now the voice has come to him again, and this time the voice is telling him to plunge a knife into the promise. And Abraham felt his heart fold in half, and part of him died right there, and he ran out of his tents and leaned on a rope and lurched out everything that was in his stomach. And he got up early the next morning, which wasn't all that hard because he hadn't slept. And he took his butcher's knife, the kind that every herdsman has. And he took his stone to sharpen it on the way, because a clean cut would be the kindest. And he took a pot with glowing embers in it, and three bundles of wood, and a length of rope stained red from tying the legs of sacrificed lambs. And the things no one saw him pack, but which he took with him anyway, were his fear and his hurt and his panicked need for God to change his mind and to change this word. And maybe he would. And so just in case, Abraham takes with him not just his son, Laughter, but two young servant boys. Maybe God would make a trade and allow one of them to be sacrificed instead. Maybe God would take the both of them for the one child of promise. Three long, worrisome days out into the journey filled with Abraham's muttered prayers of anguish. 
And still the voice hasn't come back to him saying that it would accept an exchange to spare the boy's life. And when they get to the mountain, Abraham and the promise climb alone. And the boy notices that he has wood and his father has fire and a knife. But there's nothing to offer when they reach the top. There is no sacrifice to be made. When they set out from home, it was so early in the morning and the boy was so foggy with sleep that he hadn't noticed his father didn't stop and pull a lamb out of the paddock where the flocks were kept. But now, under the clacking of his bundles of sticks, the boy asks, Father, we have no offering to give. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself, my son. He says those words uncertainly, but hopefully and desperately and blindly. Beautiful gospel words. God will provide for himself. But still, they weren't easy to say. They stuck in his throat like a bone. And when he finally got them out, they still didn't ease his heart on the climb. With every steep step, he wrestled between doubt and faith in a fierce tug of war. Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. But he didn't have a Pollyanna view of this thing. You know he pleaded with God all the way to the top. I don't understand, but I still believe. You brought life out of two old lifeless bodies, and I'll need you to bring life to my son once again after this dreadful thing is done. You know that Abraham hated to reach the top of the mountain. And when he and the boy laid out stones to make a crude altar with each one set in its place, Abraham was praying within himself, Oh God, provide. And when he untied the sticks and he laid them out on the table of sacrifice, he was shouting within himself, Oh God, provide! And when he cinched knots around the boy's ankles and wrists, and he looked into his panicked, pleading eyes, Abraham was praying, Oh, God, provide. And when he took the lid from the jar and blew the embers into hungry flames, and he hid his first tears in the smoke, Oh, God, provide. And with jerking sobs as he lays his loved son on the wood with the boy hyperventilating and blinking sightless into the midday sun, Oh, God, provide for yourself. And as he unsheathes the knife and raises it over his head and hears his blood running in his ears, he decides that when the knife reaches its full height, he'll stop thinking and fall on the boy in in a red rush, but one last time, oh God, provide for yourself. Don't take your promise back. Why would you do this? Don't take your promise away. And then he hears it. The voice. It comes again. The nowhere and everywhere voice, the voice like a song. The voice that called him out of his cellar and called him to 
to stand under the constellations and called him up this mountain of suffering. Now, in a flood of intervention, the voice calls his knife-wielding hands out of their downward plunge, and Abraham falls backward onto the ground, panting and heaving with tears streaming into his wiry beard. And this terrifying scene is your story. This is where you come from. This is who you are. We see it every once in a while. Usually, it's celebrities who do it. Michael Jackson, the king of pop, did it. He dangled his infant son over the railing of a balcony to let paparazzi snap pictures of his child during a visit to Europe. Steve Irwin, the naturalist, did it. He held his baby son in one arm while he dangled raw chicken in front of the snapping jaws of a full-grown crocodile. And when it happens, the critics always fall into an uproar. How, how can you endanger your own child like this? But this time, it's God who's doing it. And he puts a knife in Abraham's hand, and he holds that knife to the throat of his own promise. Why? Because Abraham had to see the promise up close. He had to see it at its most fearfully realistic. And he had to feel, with no distance between him and God, how much that promise means to God himself. Because the promise that God made to Abraham was a promise to love It was not just a promise for a son or an heir or a family or a legacy. It's the promise to love Abraham, a claiming, keeping love. The Bible word for that kind of unbreakable love is covenant. It was a love so large, so expansive, that Abraham couldn't be the sole recipient of it. He couldn't drink it all in. It was a love so full it could only be poured out on Abraham as Abraham was turned into a multitude of nations. But we doubt. And we disbelieve. And we disqualify ourselves from love more than from anything else. And so love shows itself this way. And the gospel in this passage is the promise is God's to keep alive, not yours, Abraham. Oh, you've loved the boy. You've kept a watchful eye over him. You've been too protective of him. But the promise is God's and he'll keep it alive. It's not yours to keep alive, not your descendants to keep alive. And so God puts his gospel on the blade of a knife To say, I swear it, I swear by myself, I won't cut you out of my love, Abraham, nor those who come from you, nor your descendants. He flashes his gospel with a piece of cutlery to show, and you can't kill my promise either, Abraham. 
Not by unbelief, not by ignorance, not by doubt, not by sin, not by pride. My promise is mine to keep alive. And to do it, I'm going to send my own son of promise. You've not withheld this son from me and I won't withhold mine from you. I have a son too. And he'll come through your family out of Isaac's line, but he's more my son than he is yours. And he's more promised than Isaac. And when your descendants ignore me and turn their backs on me, and when your descendants try to give their hearts back to the dirty, dingy little gods they collect and line up thick and deep on the shelves of their homes and their hearts... My son of promise will pull their hearts away and he'll keep their hearts with mine. He'll win them by giving to them my heart. Abraham, that's how you'll have many children by faith. More than the stars, more than the sands. My son of promise will win their hearts. My son of promise will climb the mountain of sacrifice, the mountain of death with wood on his back, just like Isaac has. But he'll climb with the wood of a cross on his back. And he'll bind himself, he'll tie himself up with your guilt, and he'll lay himself out on the altar. He'll lay himself under the knife of judgment that falls for sin, and he will swallow its cut. The blood of purification, the blood of justification won't flow from your veins, Abraham. It won't pump from Isaac's heart, Abraham. My son is your sin offering, and even that won't kill the promise. It will only make it stronger. His sacrifice will be the love between us, the pleasure we share, the inseparable love of sin removed and atonement applied. And my son of promise will make himself the ram in the thicket. I think the imagery is lost here, so I'm going to spin it just a bit. My son of promise will make himself the ram in the thicket. The kicking, thrashing, bucking righteousness. Wild and free and untamable. And you're to take hold of this righteousness. And you'll have to grab it by both horns using both of your hands. It'll take all of your strength to hold on. You'll be a tangle of limbs and effort. But he's a righteousness who gives himself to be captured by you and offered back to me again and again and again. My son, the burnt offering, will turn your descendants into living sacrifices. And I swear it by myself, he says in verse 16. Some of the most beautiful gospel words in all of scripture. I need no promise from you because I'm your promise through my son. Now the story of the patriarchs is meant to give to us a living faith. Faith like Abraham's. Abraham's faith, according to Paul, thousands of years later was faith that was counted to him as righteousness. God saw his faith as righteousness. 
The ability to say, I don't understand my circumstances. I don't know how you're at work in all of this, but I know you love me and you'll show your love for me even in this. That's the kind of faith we're to be filled with. But to have the faith of the patriarchs, we have to be convinced of God's faithfulness. We have to see it the way they saw it. And I think what we miss in our Christian lives is a long-standing biblical practice. We, we waver and panic and worry and get stuck in our immaturity because we are not people who are formed by our story the way Bible saints were formed by theirs. In the Old Testament, the people would remember God's faithfulness to the fathers with a short little formula they would recite to themselves over and over and over again ad nauseum. Remember your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Remember how your God loved father of fathers and laughter and heals. And he will love you with his same unwavering promise. His same promise of love. He will not cut you off. And the lost practice to be recovered by us is to actively remember how God has kept his promise to us in Jesus. And to turn it into a recitation. To say it to ourselves and to each other over and over and over again until we can't forget it. To stir ourselves with it. To say it until our hearts are dragged behind to believe. So for those of us who feel like we've been handled roughly by God in the last year, not, not tenderly. We've suffered some loss, the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a job, and the loss of self-respect, the loss of dignity, and a reason to get up in the morning, the loss of health. Or for those who are waiting for something. You've waited for ages, like Abraham and Sarah. For those who believe that God is out to disappoint them, Some of us actually believe that it's spiritual to expect God to disappoint us and not make us pleased with himself. For those of us worried for a child and we're helpless to do anything about it. For those who mourn a marriage that's freezing over as love grows cold. Or for those whose faith is on life support, barely a pulse left to it. For those who too often lose to their sin and never win against it in the heat of the moment. For those teetering on the edge of temptation about to go over into the pit of their sin. For those already at the bottom of that pit. For those who want to warmly evangelize neighbors and family members and friends. But you're not sure that God will move as you do evangelize them. You're not sure anything will come of it. And even for skeptics, struggling to believe and scared to death of what you'll lose if you ever actually do believe. It's the same practice for all of us. The practice goes like this. Make a short list of how God has been faithful and has loved us in Jesus. 
You can make it an elaborate statement. You can make it simple. You can make it specific to your circumstances. You can make it general. I might say something like this, and I always do it in three steps to match the Old Testament formula. God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I might say something like, Jesus is love's answer to my fears, my crippling, paralyzing fears. Jesus is the kiss that finds me at the bottom of my pain and my hurt. Jesus is the eternal promise who never tires of proving himself to me. And he'll prove his love to me even in this. Even in this. This God doesn't merely tell us stories to distract or entertain or inform us. He puts us in his continuing story to convince us of and to magnify and increase to us his love. So begin to tell yourselves your stories. The the one that you've been written into. The one that continues in Jesus by grace. I have a group of seminary students who come up to my office every Thursday afternoon. They've asked that we meet weekly and talk about doctrine and theology and ministry. And you know what they love to hear from me more than anything else? They love to hear about my failures. Tell us about that time you blew it. All right. This week they were asking, what's the worst sermon you've ever preached? And I said, I, well, I don't remember one. I remember a lot. Mostly I remember how it feels. It feels like... I shouldn't be doing this. I'm no good at this. I should find something else to do. And after our hour together was up, they sort of leaned back in their chairs and they said, it's so good to hear you say that. And they were eager to go off and start their lives as preachers. They weren't scared away from it. Can you believe that? Do you know it did it? In the gospel, the stories of our failure are stories of God's faithfulness. And that's what keeps us going. The story of the patriarchs is not the story of their faith. It's the story of God's faithfulness that pulled from them faith. In spite of their failures, and there were many, in the grainy yellowed photographs, the frightening to look at snapshots of the patriarchs. They push us to look at the beautiful, unblemished, undoctored portrait of Jesus because Jesus is the unbreakable promise. And in that promise, we live. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we need the faith of Abraham, the faith that God the Father sees as righteousness. 
We need the faith that allows us to put ourselves and all whom we love in the gracious hands of our God. To put ourselves under His greater love. To believe even when our circumstances seem darkest, coldest, when it seems nothing is happening, no one is listening. No one sees us. No one is mindful of us. And at times it seems that especially not even our God is aware of us. That we pray for the faith that won't forget. The faith that will recite your promise to love and keep us always through Jesus the Savior. We pray for the faith to string together a list, a shorthand history of how you have been faithful to us in Christ the Lord. And then we pray that you'd allow us to speak it to ourselves and to each other until our hearts are kindled into a blazing flame. And no matter what we face, we're convinced of this. We will not be cut off from the love of God. And nothing we do will put his promise to death. And if you'll give us that kind of faith, we'll have more to rejoice in. We'll have more reason to give you thanks. The Lord will provide for himself. So provide for yourself, worshipers, convinced of your faultless faithfulness in Jesus and allow us to be among them. And for all these things, we'll give you thanks. And we ask them in the Father and the Son and the Spirit.